Continuing here, last week, uh, well, last few weeks, we went first to uh, uh, Jericho. They attacked Jericho. We know the story of the trumpets blasting and the walls falling down and going in and wiping out the city. Woohoo! Fantastic thing. Everything is, is declared for God. Um, the, the people are to be destroyed because a holy God cannot stand to have unholy people dedicated to Him. They, 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 they cannot survive in His presence, so they are destroyed. All the goods and chattels, all that stuff goes to God. And of course, we heard the story of, of uh, our mate Athan who goes and says, that's a nice looking piece of robe over there. That's some nice silver. That's some nice gold. He takes it and he hides it. Uh, I read this week... Um, a Christian being a believer in God makes enjoying your sin really difficult. Achan knew something about God. He saw something he wanted. He couldn't enjoy it. He couldn't walk down the street going, hey, look at my fine clothing. He had to hide it. And in the end, he was found out. Achan wanted more than God. God, uh, we said maybe one of the things that we learned from the story of Jericho is that God is more important than stuff. He's saying to the Israelites as they're going to the land, yes, you're getting the land, but it's not about you, it's about me. Achan said, actually, God, no, it's not about you, it's about me. And God turns around and says, Achan, actually, no, it's not about you, it's about me. And we saw how Achan um, caused great trouble for the people of Israel, was found out and was judged. Not knowing of Achan's crime, the people of Israel, we saw last week, went off and they attacked the town of Ai, which, which means ruin. And it's always called the ruin. They went and attacked. They only took 3,000 men and they were soundly thrashed. They hadn't thought. We don't read about them consulting God. What do we do now, God? They just, Joshua says, yeah, that sounds good. Let's, let's send 3,000 blokes. They're more than enough. And they're wiped out and they come back and they discover Achan and all of that happens. And then we come to, to chapter 8, verse 1, and we see that God doesn't hold grudges. Isn't that nice? I don't know about you. Do you hold grudges at all? Les, Les doesn't hold grudges. He's looking up to the sky as if to say, I would never hold a grudge, Nick. We hold grudges, but God doesn't hold grudges. When we fail, it's so important for us to remember, He has already forgiven us. And we're in a different situation to the Israelites back then because when we fail... We have definitely been forgiven. All of our sins, past, present, future, have all been dealt with at the cross. Isn't that fantastic? I love the story of Jesus. Sorry, a little bit of a sidetrack. Jesus washing Peter's feet. And Peter looks at him. This is on the, the eve of Jesus' death and betrayal. And, and Jesus sits the disciples down and starts washing their feet. And he gets to Peter and Peter says, You nuts, Jesus. You're, you're my Lord. I'm not going to let you wash my feet. And Jesus looks at him and says, Well, Peter, if, if I don't wash your feet, you've got no part in me. And then Peter, I love Peter, says, Well, Jesus, wash it all! And Jesus looks at him and goes, Peter, mate, you just don't get it. You're clean. Just your feet are a bit dusty. And that, that's the point of, of what I'm saying here. We come to God uh, as Christians now, and Jesus looks at us and says, you're clean, all of you is clean. Yes, you might have a bit of dust on you, but it's not even like get out the soap and water. It's just wash it off a little bit. It's wash it and dry it, rinse it off, because you're clean. God doesn't hold grudges. 
doesn't hold grudges against the Israelites. He holds them even less, if that's possible, against us. So often we're caught up in the fact of, oh, God, 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 I've done it again. I've done wrong. I'm a sinner. I'm a this. God just looks at us and goes, let's get moving. This is what he says to Joshua. Let's get moving. It's one thing to know we're forgiven. It's another thing to accept that and live that. God comes to Joshua and says, right, let's move on. Joshua could have said, no, God, we've done wrong. We've, we've sinned against you. We have a nation that we've failed you, God. Well, I won't go because you're still angry at us. Don't we do that sometimes? Or is that only me who ever does that? No, God, you can't have forgiven me. That's not trust. Faith is Joshua going, right, God, you say go, let's go. You've done it, dealt with, let's move forward, God. And they go. Faith is letting God turn our gaze off our past and onto him, onto our champion, onto the one who has already won. And God says to Joshua in this passage that we read today, Joshua, I have already won the victory. I have given the city of Ai into your hands. We'll just quickly go over the battle plans. It's, uh, it's Ai or Ai. It's called the ruins. Um, it's, it's always with the the. Uh, it might have been a temporary outpost of Bethel. The archaeology is interesting, whether it was a big fortified city or maybe just a little place with, with a bit of uh, defenses or something. Um, but Bethel is not too far away, and we actually read in verse 17 of chapter 8, uh, in most of the manuscripts, it, it says there that the people of Ai and Bethel are involved in the battle against Israel. So it's quite possible that this is a defensive outpost or just a, you know, just sort of a, like a manjura to Perth kind of thing but with a bit of more countryside in between. So about three kilometers. So even less than Mandurah to Perth. Um, between it, between I or AI and Bethel, we're talking about 12,000 people. Now that's a big number, and there's lots of big numbers here, and you get some commentators that go, oh no, the word thousand actually means military unit. You know, even if it means military unit, we're still talking many, 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 many people. Um, God is the one, unlike the last time they attacked, who orchestrates the plan. Joshua puts it into action. This is not like Jericho, a plan of miraculously the walls falling down. This is just a plan where God says, do it, and the people goes, you know what, God, we're just going to trust you, we're going to do. We're just going to do it. It's a very sort of normal kind of plan, but, but it's the Israelites going, yes, God, well, even the normal is down to you. So we're just going to trust you for this. Joshua first arranges, he sends 30,000 men uh, to hide uh, behind the city. The, the, the region is very hilly and raviney. You can easily hide people there. And, and then either he sends an addition to or a second ambush group a little bit later in verse 12, another 5,000. Um, it's a bit confusing how many are in the ambush there and when he sends them and all of that, but it's either 30,000 or 35,000 or it's two different ambush groups uh, between Ai and Bethel and, and maybe they're there as a defensive measure against Bethel or to come in and attack the people who have come from Bethel to help the battle. It's all very confusing military stuff. And then Joshua sets up camp across the Rift Valley where the king of uh, Ai would see them. And he sees them, in verse 12, and he rushes out and he attacks. And the Israelites, well, they play into the overconfidence of the king of Ai. 
Last time, they'd been soundly thrashed, and so they pretend to be frightened. And they turn tail, and they run, and, you know, it, it's, it's quite a bit of trust in God there, because if you're trying to run away from an enemy without letting them kill you, it's not the easiest thing. I'm told, I've never had to do it. But here they are, trying to fight and defend themselves, and, and attack at the same time as looking scared and running away. And again, God orchestrates the timing in verse 18. He says to Joshua, somehow he speaks to him and says, Joshua, Ai is empty. All the people are out. It's undefended. And Joshua raises his spear and and God says, Joshua, I'm giving you this town. I'm giving you Ai. And and at the signal of the spear, uh, uh, in go the ambush. And they just walk into town and they set it on fire, which which, uh, is a cue that everyone sees. The people of Ai see it. And the people of Israel see it and they turn and they start attacking. And all of a sudden the soldiers of Ai and Bethel find themselves in this pincer movement on both sides. You've got Israelites this side, Israelites on this side. And they're completely wiped out. And then the Israelites finish off of all soldiers and they, they turn around and they head back into the town. And they eradicate everyone in it. And with Joshua holding the spear, we're told, up high. Holding the javelin, whatever it is, he's holding this thing up high until the very last person in the city, in the town, is wiped out. Amen. Boy, you guys are no fun. Isn't that good? Then you want to say praise God? God orchestrated this battle. Why did God murder 12,000 people? Oh, we can, use, we can use nice sort of theological language to go, well, he didn't murder them, he killed them. But, but isn't that what most people and most of us actually are thinking here, going, why, didn't, why did he murder them? Why did he commit genocide? Certainly people outside the church would come to this passage and they'd read and they'd go, God wiped out the entire people. Yes, we can understand fighting against the soldiers, but then going in and wiping out all the people in the town. And this isn't the only time it happens. It happened at, uh, at Jericho. It happens again and again and again. When we come across things like this, um, Vili, you know about ostriches. You know the story about what an ostrich does when it finds something it doesn't like? Puts their head in the ground. Because if I can't see you, that's not going to bother me. Does it actually happen, Philly, or is it just a fairy tale? We don't know. Every time I see an ostrich, I put my head in the ground. You know, God is big enough to work through our questions with. In fact, Bible's full of people going to God saying, why would you do that, God? How long? In fact, in heaven, Revelation, we have the picture of the saints who have been martyred saying to God, how long, oh God? It's not wrong to speak to God and go, well, God, I don't understand what you're doing. How does this... Why? Why would God do this? I think if we, if we maybe come to understand a little bit, we have to understand the bigger picture here. And we have to remember that, that we're not talking the slaughter of innocence here. 
There are no children mentioned in AI. I don't know what, what happens. I know that God can be trusted for those who, who are before the age of reasoning. I, I, I assume that God knows what he's doing there. But as a people, there were no... And that's, sorry, that's a totally different subject. And that's a really difficult subject to talk through. But for, as a people... The town of Ai and the nation of Canaan, or the land of Canaan, was not a nation of innocence. Just if you've got your Bibles, turn with me quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18 verses 9 to 12 says the following. When you enter the land uh, the Lord your God has given you, be very careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. For example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering. I love that as a, just a throwaway. Just as an example. And if you wake up one morning and you feel, you know, I'd really like to say, Peter, you woke up tomorrow morning and go, I'd, I'd really like to just kill my daughter to make God happy. I, I don't know why they would ever think to wake that up. But that's what was happening in the land. In fact, the Carthagians, the Carthage, they were uh, related to the Canaanites. Uh, Phoenicians and related to them up until the 2nd century BC there's archaeological evidence of them killing their children to their goddess Tanit this is one of the things they did for example never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering do not let your people practice fortune telling or use sorcery or interpret omens or engage in witchcraft or cast spells or function as mediums or psychics or call forth the spirits of the dead Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And here's the crutch. It is because the other nations have done these detestable things that the Lord your God will drive them out ahead of you, but you must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you are about to displace uh, uh, consult sorcerers and fortune tellers, but the Lord your God forbids you to do such things. God, we're told, before they come into the land, Moses is speaking to the people and saying to them, the people are being punished because they, well, God is judging them for their religious practices. They are not the innocents we'd like them to think of. We'd like to think of them. We mentioned in passing there, what about children, like young babies or whatever? Who's to say they weren't going to be killed by their own parents? I'd rather trust a loving God than a false goddess and a harsh parent. There were no innocents in I. There were no innocents in Canaan. There are no innocents anywhere. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. The guilt of Canaan was ripe. Genesis 15, 16, at the very start when God came to Abraham and promised him that he would bless him and give him a nation and, 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 and make him great and through him bless the whole world. God turned to him and said, yes, your, your descendants are going to go and they're going to live in Egypt and after four generations they're going to come out and they're going to inherit this land that I'm giving you now, Abraham, but they're not getting it now because the, the sins of the Amorites are not yet right. It's not yet full. It took 400 years 
before the promise that God made to Abraham about the land came true. This this was a time that God gave the people there to turn from their wicked ways. And it's not as if this is an unexpected sneak attack. Well, yes, it was an unexpected sneak attack at AI because they hid in ambush, but, but this is not an unexpected thing that's happening. We saw already at Jericho there was that lady, that, that prostitute Rahab, who turned to the spies and said, we know what's happening. Everyone in the land knows what's happening. God's given you this land. And Rahab said, I'm going to throw myself on God's mercy. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to put my, my faith in Him. But, but the people of Ai, the people of Bethel, the people of all these other places did not trust God. They, they said, we will not bow to your God who dares to claim that we must be His people, that this is His land, that He has a right to do what He wants. No, no, we will not bow to Him. We will not become His people. We will stand on our strength. If God is God, then He is perfectly holy. He cannot stand anything unclean. He cannot stand such detestable sins. If God is God, then He is the maker of all things. He is the ruler of the world. He is the judge of the world, the king of the world. What He says goes, and when those who stand against Him say, we will not bow to you, then God has every right to say, well, that is treason. And there is no worse unholiness than to turn against the holy God. You see, God was, wasn't just slaughtering innocents. God was calling enough on more than 400 years of injustice. And God is saying, I'm bringing justice. I've given you 400 years of patience and grace, but enough is enough. And we think, well, now wouldn't it have been better if they just lived out their lives naturally there in AI and died peacefully at age 143? Or whatever. Or die peacefully in their sleep at age 50. Would it have been better? No. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. God is God and all of us must stand before his judgment throne one day. And, and these people, if they had lived to be a hundred, they would still have gone and faced God and God would have said but you've rejected me, and then they would have been without him, damned for all eternity. Their hearts were set against God. They were not going to turn to God. God had given them ample, 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 ample time of grace, and they'd said, no, 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 no. This life is not the be-all and end-all. By the way, God, it, it, it's God's call and God's call alone as to whether judgment comes now or later. Whoever asked me was, did you have a prophecy from God? Fran, no, I didn't have a prophecy from God. And if God gave me a prophecy now saying, go and slaughter people, it would be a false prophecy. And I'll explain that in a minute. This is God's call. It's a call that only he can make. This is God's battle. This is God's war. This is not Israelites' war. And this is not because the Israelites are morally superior to the Canaanites. This is about trying to protect the Israelites from the Canaanites. 
We think that life is more valuable than anything else, that God owes us life. God doesn't owe us anything. Life's a gift. And far more valuable than life here. Let me put it this way. Life here is like pre-dinner cocktails. You don't go out for pre-dinner cocktails. You go out for the dinner and the pre-dinner cocktails sort of come with it. What's important is not this life here, but eternity. This is like a, a scratch at the beginning of existence. Far more valuable than this life is our eternal state with God. And the thing is, judgment is, is a necessary way of dealing with people who sin. Because God is holy. That that means he must be judged. If he never judged, he wouldn't be holy. He would be an anemic, useless God. But it's not God's preferred way of dealing with people. What God prefers is repentance and trust. Ezekiel 6.9 speaks about God grieving over sin. Jonah, the prophet of God, who I like a lot, was told by God, go to Nineveh and tell the people that I'm going to wipe them out. And what does he do? He jumps on a boat and heads in the opposite direction. Called up about it. He says, well, actually, because I, uh, well, yeah, well, fine, I'll go. And then he goes and the people repent. And Jonah says to God, God, you, yeah, I knew you'd do this. You always do this. People repent. You say, I won't. That's what God prefers to do. He says, I don't want to wipe you out. I don't want to destroy you. I want you to turn. Jonah knew about it. He was irritated with God because he hated the Ninevites, I think. But God prefers it not to wipe people out. He prefers to give a chance for repentance. And he'd given 400 years of patience before enacting his promise of the land. The people at any stage could have done a Rahab and repented. And yes, even today he's been, he's been patient for more than 2,000 years waiting for his return when he's going to come and make everything new. And he's been patient not because he's slow to keep his promise but because he doesn't want to wipe out people. He wants to, he wants to give us ample, 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 ample opportunity to go, you know what Jesus, you are better than anything else. <sighs> Jesus is nice, isn't he? Can I get an amen to that at least? Jesus is nice. He's not like this. You know, the Jesus of the New Testament doesn't shy away from the God of the Old Testament, mainly because he is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus himself calls for judgment on false teachers and wicked cities. Um, in the Old Testament, there was the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, wiped out by God because of their sin and their wickedness. Jesus at one point says, woe to you towns because, boy, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to look brilliant in the end. You're going to face worse than them. Because you've rejected not just God, you've rejected me, the way to, to life. Luke chapter 13, there's some people who come to to Jesus and go, oh, you know what, those people who got murdered in the temple while they were offering the sacrifices, yeah, they must have been real baddies. Kind of like us going, yeah, those Canaanites, they must have been real baddies, weren't they? Yeah, they must have been horrible sinners. And Jesus turned to those who came with that story to him and he says, yeah. 
Do you think they're worse than you? Everyone's guilty. My question is, basically says Jesus, will you turn and follow God? And then Jesus says, what about those 18 people? There was a tower in Siloam that fell and killed them. Were they worse than you guys? Sort your life out. Decide for yourself, are you going to turn and follow God? They're not worse than you. They're exactly the same as you. Everyone is guilty before God and will perish, says Jesus, unless we trust in him. God's not a safe God, but he is good. Jesus is loving and fierce and kind and untamable. He heals the sick and he whips the money changers. He forgives and he blasts the Pharisees. He's coming back as king. The book of Revelation speaks of him returning as judge and ruler and, and judging the world. Just as in the Old Testament, those who accept Jesus, God's son, are secure. They, they survive. Those who trust God survive, but those who don't trust him, they fall. And what about this violence thing? Well, Genesis 6.11, we're told that violence covered the face of the earth. Violence is a direct result of our fallen state of, of sin in the world. And, and Jesus explicitly rejected violence. He was in the garden being arrested. And, and Peter, uh, my, my favorite uh, disciple, took out his sword and started slashing off ears left, right, and center. He only managed to get one, and even that he did a half job. And Jesus fixed it anyway. So that was a bit of a waste of time. But Jesus turned to him and said, Peter, mate, put away your sword. And then Jesus goes and he's being questioned by Pilate and, and Pilate says, well, tell me about your kingdom. Where does it come from? And is it, are you really a king? And Jesus says, well, if I was a king like any other king, then my followers would be attacking and rescuing me with their swords. His is not a kingdom of violence. That's the Jesus we like. Amen. But he's the same Jesus. Yes. Jesus is about peace. God has always been about bringing people back to him. Breaking down the barrier of hostility and enmity that we set up against God. And I wonder if that isn't part of why AI was judged. In part to teach that God's not a walkover. Peace comes from following him. If we insist on fighting God, you're going to lose. Hate to break it to you, that's just the way it is. He is, after all, God. But maybe also think about it this way. God gave Canaan to his people. And he said to Israel, I want you to faithfully represent me to the nations. I want you to be a light to the nations. And you are to be that in anticipation of my true representative which is Jesus, God become human. And people all through that time had an opportunity to become members of God's people. The Israelites were always meant to be a, a missionary race drawing people in, but, but if people didn't join God's people like Rahab, if, if they just sort of cohabited with them and were connected but not God's people, then they would be a stumbling block for Israel. They would be tempting them to worship other gods, to rebel, to, to see God just as another option in the pantheon of gods. As Israel's representative gods, uh, God's people were meant to be holy. 
All the prophets are about that, calling God's people to follow God only, to stay away from idols, to to put their trust in him, to be that light. The Canaanites were not innocents who were unjustly judged and destroyed. They, They were as guilty as anyone else. God chose to judge them at that time. And I wonder if God chose to judge them at that time because he wanted to eradicate their spiritual influence over his people Israel. And yes, the Israelites did end up following a lot of their practices, and the Israelites themselves were judged by God and cast out into exile. God's not a walkover for anyone. Remember, we saw way back when, it's not about God on our side, it's about whether we're on God's side. But God's representatives, Israel, were not supposed to, could not mix with false religion. You cannot mix true religion with false religion any more than you can mix oil and water. Except we're so good at it, aren't we? And they were so good at it. We add a bit of emulsifier and it looks fine and it tastes awful. It's bad for you. Canaan was meant to be a land set apart for Israel, free of contaminants. If you think about a piece of bread, you have got fungal spores in the bread you ate for breakfast this morning. Almost guaranteed. The spore of sin is in each and every one of us. And left alone, it will develop. That's the amazing thing that God comes in and goes, yeah, let it develop. So what? I've already given you a new life. And I'm eradicating it even as we speak. But if you take your your slice of beautiful fresh white bread and leave it on the counter, it'll eventually start going off, won't it? You take your lovely, fresh slice of white bread and you stick it next to a moldy piece of bread. It's going to go moldy pretty quick. And I think this is maybe what God's God's doing. He's saying, I want to keep my people who are meant to be a holy, pure people, a representative of me. I want to keep them in a place where they're not going to go moldy quickly. Joshua, the king of uh, Ai, dies and he's hung on a tree as a representative of his people. Our king, Jesus, also died horribly and was hung on a tree. The difference is he was innocent. He was immune to the spore of sin. Or at least, let me say, he never gave in to the spore of sin. And yet he was still cursed for his people. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And, and as ever, we have a choice to put our trust in that king, in God, or to reject that king. And to reject him is to die like he died, except we are covered with sin. But to trust him is to die with him, to die in him, covered by his perfection. And to rise with him in his innocence. To take off the old self and put on the new self. Why die with the king of I when we can die with the king of Israel? More than we can die, not the king of Israel so much, but that we die with the king of eternity. So, let's finish here quickly. Should we go out and wipe somebody out? Who feels up for it? Yay! No. 
I'm on my own. Good. We live in a different age, and what's different is that we live post-Jesus. In creation, let me quickly sum up here, God's God's gave humanity the right to rule as his representatives. That's what our job is as people on this earth, and this creation, in this universe. We are to be God's representatives. And God, through all of this story, post the fall, was seeking to preserve Israel or a remnant of Israel as a remnant of humanity because God was preserving a physical people through whom one day he would come to us. But now, Israel's function as a people set apart for God has been fulfilled because the true representative of God, God himself become flesh, has come. See, this this is in part why God was trying to keep his people pure because he was keeping them safe as his representatives because through them would come the true representative. That's why he judged them there. That's why he gave them the land. That's why he set them apart. That's why he kept saying to them, be holy as I am holy. That's why he gave them the law. And the law itself has already been, been brought to an end. Functioning as a nanny, as a guardian, until the time that Jesus comes. All of that is just about keeping the people of Israel as this remnant out of which would come the true representative of God. And now all of that is done. It's, it's finished. It's away with. There is no need. Oh, I'm getting too excited. There is no need to keep this physical line going. There is no need to have a law that, that really is holy and good and wonderful, but all it does is makes us sinners. Because... Paul says, I see the law and all of a sudden I realize how much I wanted to do something I never wanted to do before. But, but it's done away with. Because the true representative has come. Israel's function as a people set apart, fulfilled. The law and nanny until Jesus comes, fulfilled. Both the law and Israel are good, but their primary purpose is accomplished. There is no need... To have the safeguarding anymore. There are no orders post Jesus coming for the church to wipe out the opposition. Not the opposition to Israel, not the opposition to the church. The Crusades were not from God. Saying let's wipe out the Palestinians, that's not from God. Because the function has been fulfilled. Yes, the law is still precious and perfect and good. And yes, the people of Israel are still loved by God and precious and chosen. But but their function is fulfilled. There is no right now to say we have to maintain them until God does what he promised. Because every promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the promises of God now cannot be wiped out by people. They cannot be destroyed because God's kingdom is a kingdom that is not of this earth. Yet, it's invading this earth and it's taking over and one day it will come. But even when it comes, it's not our job to violently bring it there. It's God who does the bringing of the kingdom. And right now there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Neither hardship or sorrow or, or, or sword or persecution or any of that can separate us because God's kingdom cannot be destroyed these days. Now you, that analogy of the, the lovely white bread and the, the moldy bread and you've got to keep them separate and all of that. Now, now we're immune to that in Christ Jesus. He 
is immune to sin. And those who are in him are immune to sin. And so no, he doesn't say keep away. He says, no, no, I want you guys to go into the world and I want you to spread the message that they don't have to, you know, go into a soggy mess. And smell putrid and actually end up in the bin. The eternal rubbish there. No, because I am immune to that and I've come as the true representative and you are mine and in me. You have been set free from that and I'm breaking everything here because I'm so excited. Isn't that good? Well, there we go. The keystone has changed. Because the keystone has changed. Yes, there remains judgment for those who oppose God, but it remains at the end. God's judging the world now and judging people now. He still has that right, but it's not essential for his plans. God doesn't have to lock us up somewhere safely as his church. Because nothing can actually destroy us now. Yes, we can still feel the lure of following the ways of the world. And the Bible says to us, don't do that. But, but brothers and sisters, can I tell you something right now? And this is something that I've been challenged with this week myself, is that no matter what, we are already free and safe. And nothing can change that. Isn't that brilliant? God's plans have already blossomed. By all means, uh, I was reading uh, Colossians, or listening to Colossians the other day, and, and, and Paul writes, the, he basically says exactly that. He says, you know what, just live in the freedom that you've got, because nothing can affect you. You are immune in Christ. You have got a new nature. You've got a new person. And he goes on and says, yes, so, so live that way. But that is who you are. Live out of who you are. This is a difficult story, isn't it? Killing of 12,000 people. I think I've, if, oh, dare I say this, if Jesus was to be standing here today and we'd say to him, Jesus they must have been horrible people for you to wipe them out that way. I think Jesus would look at us and, and maybe take out Luke chapter 13 and go, well, did you read what I said a, a little while back? In fact, let's, let's do that. Luke chapter 13. And just read exactly what Jesus said. And then we'll finish. Luke chapter 13. Jesus said... Uh, they asked, is that why they suffered? Are they worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Uh, Jesus asked, is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too. Amen. No, you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. What about those 18 people uh, who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? Of course not. No, I, I tell you, you, I tell you again that, that unless you repent, you will perish too. This is Jesus, nice, kind Jesus who pats little children on the head, Jesus. He says the only way for you to be safe 
and for you to be immune from the contamination of this world is for you to be in me. Because if you're not in me, this world is a sinful place. And the spore, mold spores of sin are floating everywhere. Hey, they're floating in you. There's only one antidote. It's me, says Jesus. Let me finish right there. Mrs. Hedges.